In my first podcast, I talked about the role that atonal music uh, played in the period following World War II when it became the dominant music style in the U.S. and internationally. Atonal movement was largely responsible for ending classical music as a growing genre. It basically turned people off to modern classical music. And so classical music since that day has remained an archival kind of music, like going to the Metropolitan Museum of Art to see old paintings. And it doesn't seem to have something like the modern Museum of Art, where new paintings are constantly exhibited. You don't find that very much in classical music. What you do find is new classical music appearing mostly as movie backgrounds in the cinema. Sometimes on major orchestras, often have little short segments by modern composers sandwiched in between the real program, which is of the great masters. How did this come about? There were many factors, and I'll be in upcoming podcasts going into some of them. One of them was the CIA, believe it or not. The CIA became involved in cultural life starting around the 50s after World War II. The CIA derived from an organization called the OSS, or the Office of Strategic Services, that played a role in World War II in defeating the Nazis and the Japanese. The organization was headed up by a guy named William Donovan, often referred to as Wild Bill Donovan, and it recruited its main people from elite universities like Harvard and Yale. Many of them knew each other from having attended school together. They carried out all kinds of missions. Just as an example of one mission, uh, which, which interests me, there's a Jewish fellow named Mo Berg, who was one of the few Jews involved in major baseball. He was a coach for the Boston Red Sox among other things, and he carved out somewhat of a minor career in baseball. However, because he was fluent in German, he was recruited by the OSS to go to Europe and poke around and find out whether uh, a famous scientist named Werner Heisenberg was going to be capable and, and was interested in building an atomic bomb for Hitler. This was quite important. Werner Heisenberg was one of the founders of quantum physics. I won't go into that, but it's a very interesting subject. Uh, if you've not read about it, I suggest you do. But anyway, Heisenberg was rumored through various informants that he was going to head up a whole project, like a Manhattan project for Germany, so that Hitler might come out with the atomic bomb before the uh, U.S. did. So Berg was sent there to sound him out. And he did. He went to a conference in Switzerland, which was a neutral country during World War II, where Heisenberg was giving a talk. And he was packing a gun. And his orders were, if he was pretty sure that Heisenberg was doing such a thing, he should shoot him immediately. I have no idea how they expected he was going to get out of the country, even though Switzerland was you know, a small country, had a lot of Nazi agents in it. But it turned out that he felt that Heisenberg was not serious about doing anything like that for Hitler. And so Heisenberg lived, thank God. And there was no real serious Manhattan Project by Hitler. After the war, after World War II, the OSS became Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, with Donovan still in charge. And there seemed to be like 
two CIAs. The aim of the CIA was to protect America's interests abroad, which was seen as fighting communism, fighting the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union's influence in the world. And the CIA fought on two different fronts. One was the cultural front, and the other was the more practical front. The more practical front was carrying out assassinations, overthrowing governments. Many examples of this, one was the assassination of Patrice Lumumba, the head of the government in the Congo, who they felt was too left-leaning and maybe too pro-Soviet, and he was murdered by the CIA. And they overthrew numerous governments, including the government in Iran, which was headed up by a nationalist, not at all a communist, a capitalist-type nationalist, who, however felt that this oil belonged to Iran and should not be exploited by foreign countries like the U.S. They actually overthrew the entire government there and put the Shah, who was like a czar or an absolute monarch, back in charge in Iran until he was overthrown by the Iranian Islamic Revolution. The CIA also carried out an insane program called MKUltra and various other programs similar to that wherein they were trying to develop a mind-controlled drug because they thought the Chinese had a mind-controlled drug, and so they figured, why shouldn't America have its own mind-controlled drug? Of course, the Chinese actually didn't have such a drug, and they were not able to develop such a drug, but they did think that for a whole period of time, for many years, that LSD was the drug of choice for mind control. And they went around spreading it, and that's how LSD came into the world. They had like houses in various cities like San Francisco and New York where they lured people in with the idea that they were going to have sex with women and surreptitiously gave them the drug and then studied what their behavior was. They even insanely gave the drug to various people in their own orbit, including CIA people, army people who were developing these drugs, were suddenly surreptitiously dosed with the drug. One of them, Frank Olson, there's a documentary on Netflix about this. It's quite interesting. He uh, jumped out or was pushed, more likely pushed, from a window after he freaked out and was about to leak secrets inadvertently about this whole program. So they got rid of him. Now, the other CIA, however, (laughs) was drew on its elite contacts with culture. People from Harvard, Yale, and other elite schools who were very immersed in high culture in those schools, reading the best authors, the new fine arts, music, and so on. And they used this aspect to create a cultural war against the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was pushing its own people and had various views on writing and painting and there were some famous Soviet writers like Mikhail Sholokhov and others. And on the music scene, there was, of course, Prokofiev and Shostakovich, who Stalin pushed as being the great Soviet composers, while at the same time trying to make them stay within the bounds of what he thought was, was good music. He didn't like dissonance, actually. And he was very conservative in his musical tastes. So he was constantly being outraged by them because Shostakovich and Prokofiev were very influenced by international trends, which at that time were tending towards experimental music and the atonal, partially as a reaction to Germany's fascination with the traditional music, and especially Wagner. When I say Germany, Hitler Germany. And even after the war, there was an effort on the part of the Western powers to try to get Germans to stop 
thinking like Nazis. And part of that, they thought, was their fascination with Wagner and other Romantic-era uh, composers. Although, that's a whole other subject that I, that I could go into in an entire lecture about how they handled that, because it was very contradictory. For example, they put Nazis, people who had actually been Nazis, like von Karajan, in charge of big German orchestras. And even though there was a major outcry amongst Jews and other critics, non-Jewish critics, about how they could do this, because these people were actual Nazis under Hitler, and they weren't just uh, artists. However, they did it anyway, because these people had big names and, and were very capable. But as part of the CIA war on the cultural front, they actually went very far. They created a Congress of Cultural Freedom, which was endorsed by all kinds of big-name people in the arts, many of whom did not know that the CIA was involved, but many of whom did know that the CIA was involved and worked with the CIA. And their idea was to promote Western values of art and freedom of expression as opposed to the totalitarian policies of the Soviet Union where only certain types of art were allowed. For example, paintings were very restricted. You couldn't do anything abstract. And a lot of paintings that were promoted by the Soviet government were ridiculous pictures of people with tractors. I saw some of it myself during an exhibit that the Soviet Union had in New York. I think it corresponded with Khrushchev's visit here. And it was really pitiful stuff. I don't feel there's anything wrong with representational art, but this was formulaic representational art, formulated by bureaucrats. And the same thing with writers in the Soviet Union who were persecuted if they told the truth or, or even used different forms you know, that weren't specifically realistic. They didn't like that at all. And persecution in the Soviet Union could be anywhere from not being published to being sent to a gulag and killed. Millions of people went to these gulags or put in these gulags, and many of them were artists who didn't toe the line or Stalin had a, pissed off about them. Stalin was very personal about some of this stuff. He killed, at his direction, many very important artists, including people in the theater as well as writers. Anyway, the CIA. So the CIA put a guy named Nicholas Nabokov in charge of the music part of the cultural association. One of the aspects of the cultural thing was creating many programs and literary magazines, and they were pushing people like James Baldwin, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Richard Wright, Ernest Hemingway, and they were promoting the abstract expressionists like Jackson Pollock, even though many of these people were left-wing. They didn't care. Uh, they felt, in fact, that some of the left-wing people were more adamant anti-communists than, uh, than the conservative or apolitical writers and musicians and so on. So they had no problem um, with the politics of these people because one of the things they could do was keep it under control and keep it focused on the Soviet Union rather than American society, which, of course, was segregationist at the time on the whole entire South. It was virtually a totalitarian society itself in the South. And discrimination in the North and income inequality, which of course existed then also to a great extent in our society. They, they had to put up with a certain amount of that from these writers, of course, but they felt that the more important thing was to use them as a foil against the policies of the Soviet Union, which repressed 
writers of this type. Anyway, getting back to Nabokov. Nabokov was a minor composer. He was a cousin of the more famous Nabokov, of, who wrote Lolita and other things. And he was put in charge of the music division. And among other things, he organized festivals, a festival in Paris in 52 and in 1954, one in Rome, that performed the works of many composers with an emphasis, especially in the Rome one, on atonal composers. Francis Saunders really wrote the book on this, and I suggest you might get it, the CIA's Cultural Wars, says that Nabokov expressly said the conference was for avant-garde music, which was expressively forbidden by Stalin, and that meant 12-tone compositions. They included compositions by atonals, composers like Alban Berg, Elliot Carter, Luigi Dalla Piccola, and Luigi Nano. These were featured along with plenty of other composers, young composers who were not household names at that time, but who were for the most part atonal. The CIA did not invent atonalism, and I don't mean to show that they did. They simply promoted it. So there were plenty of composers, young composers, who were in that field. Now, there were also plenty of young composers who were not, but they were not exactly the ones who got involved in this conference. Also, interestingly, Stravinsky, who for me is a big musical influence, had entered, unfortunately, his atonal phase. Stravinsky was not an atonal composer until later in his life when he drifted with this tide especially when he saw there was a lot of money in it, because it's very hard for a composer to get their works done. It costs a lot of money to hire an orchestra and so on. And if somebody's going to help with that, if you have patrons doing it, that's the way to go. And uh, Stravinsky was very aware of that and did an excellent job in promoting his music and getting his music, getting funded and grants and all that kind of thing. And I'm not saying that's why he went to atonalism. He probably went to atonalism because he was swept along by the movement, which is particularly sad because he had invented many different forms of, of music to show a modern composer the way to create music that is not simply a copy of music of the past. Although, let's face it, how do you copy the music of the past? Can you just create a Beethoven uh, symphony? Well, you can, but you're not Beethoven, so it's not going to sound very good. But Stravinsky showed that there was a, a way forward for modern composing, whether you used any of the forms that he used or not. But unfortunately, when he went into this atonal phase, he got on board a movement that was creating not just musical dissonance, but dissonance against classical music, shrinking the audience, making the audience feel that they either were too ignorant to appreciate this wonderful, horrible music, or didn't like the music based on their musical experience, didn't like music that had no beauty, that had no melody, that used ridiculous concepts such as you have to use every single tone before you use another tone. That's the 12-tone serialism theory. Again, uh, I'm not going to go into that since we're talking about the CIA, but uh, I will in another lecture go more into the innards of that kind of music. The CIA also funded the Darmstadt Summer Course. This was in Darmstadt, Germany. This is a summer-long institute for serialist and avant-garde music in Darmstadt, which still exists today. It has been described as the leading internal forum for experimental music. They have a prize also, and basically they are simply a promotion engine for atonal music. 
although their influence is not very big today. Because as I've said, atonal music is done the way the dodo, thank God, but it for many years was very influential and gave plenty of money and grants and stuff to composers as an incentive to writing this kind of music, as did the Rockefeller Foundation and the Ford Foundation and other uh, big organizations that funded this kind of music, although not only that kind of music. It's interesting, the author of the book I just mentioned, Saunders, she states this, that she states, later critics would wonder whether serialism had broken its emancipatory promise, driving music into a modernist cul-de-sac where it sat, restricted and difficult, tyrannized by despotic formulae and commanding an increasingly specialized audience. And then she quotes Susan Suntag, a Greek American critic. Suntag said, towards its squawks and thumps, she wrote, we were deferential. We knew we were supposed to appreciate ugly music. So that's where it all wound up. And again, I would just like to emphasize, I'm not saying that the CIA created atonal music or serialism or that it alone promoted it because that's not true. But it did play a big role in doing that. And it did play a big role in the American art scene that we feel to this day. Abstract expressionism, for instance, has become probably the major American art form and has in fact squeezed out representational art in the United States, unless it's representational art of a surrealist nature. The CIA played a role in that. But again, there were plenty of other critics, non-CIA critics, who also promoted it and do today. I'm not attacking abstract art. I happen to like it. But I'm just saying that this was a, an influence by a secret police organization on our very culture. And it's something that most people would reject. And of course, the CIA's went on from then in the 50s to do so many horrible things, including recently uh, the torture in, the, in Iraq and so on, uh, do, doing all kinds of torture. Nobody held accountable at all for that to this day. And God knows what they're up to now. It's a very secretive organization. We have no idea what it's doing in our name to other people, except we know it's not good. We know that Guantanamo still exists. There's still plenty of renditions to black sites where torture is being done. There have been glimmers of that. And that's the CIA today. They have today, to our knowledge, no cultural influence, which just may be a dumbing down of the CIA. All of those aristocratic uh, Yale and Harvard elites uh, may not be uh, the ones in charge anymore calling the shots. And they have, may have no glimmer about what culture is about at this point, no training in that area. So that's why we may be safe for them. But who knows? So that concludes our podcast for today. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And I'll conclude with some of my music.